Hello, and welcome to Popular Podagogy. I am your host, Nathan Cheney. This podcast is brought to you by Queen's University Faculty of Education. Uh, we are fortunate to be joined today by Brian Aspinall. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Um, so it, you're probably one of our more famous guests, but we're going to still treat you like uh, people out there don't know that you're a rock star. So uh, you're no longer teaching directly in a classroom. So what is your position now and what does that include? Uh, these days, uh, I'm on a leave of absence, and I'm pretty well teaching AQ courses full-time with uh, the universities. Okay. I'm uh, doing consulting for various school boards across the country, just in terms of computational thinking and how do we integrate coding as a tool for learning to, uh, you know, provide some equity, but also provide voice to some of our students that may be reluctant to share some of their ideas. This new, new literacy creative outlet. So just trying to find innovative ways to integrate coding and computational thinking into, you know, amazing lessons teachers already do every day. And and when you're consulting, what are some of the things that you would do? Like, do you go directly into the classroom, or do you kind of work with the administration to try and do it that way? You know, all of the above. I've done the, the leadership level, talking to administration, to figure out how we can roll it out and scale it across the district. Uh, we've done the teacher PD stuff, but I personally like the kids sessions the best uh, with teachers present. It's just amazing what our young people can do, and uh, they never cease to amaze me, you know, as young as our primary students with what they're capable of doing. So those are, I, I really enjoy that the most, I think, with in terms of um, being hands-on with the students and teachers present. Yeah. And have you found that uh, some of the things that you've done in the classroom as a consultant has really kind of opened the eyes to the teachers that were there and, and really changed the way that they have seen things? Or have you found that most of the time they were already doing a lot of really great things and uh, you were kind of just adding on? Or both? Oh, yeah, def definitely both. Um, just bringing a different outlook, I think. Having studied computer science uh, and, and been in it for so long now, being able to bring that to the table and, and challenge students to do some really creative things and uh, being able to offer those next steps, right? If they're doing some really cool, innovative things in their classroom, whether they're coding greeting cards or animations or things like that, just being able to challenge them with that next step because it's so uh, what we call low floor, high ceiling, right? The opportunities for extending these assignments just can be done to almost an infinite level. And so uh, when I was going through my faculty of education program, a lot of the talk was with integrated curriculum and, and sharing um, subjects and, and kind of not splitting everything up. Is that a lot of what you're doing now with this coding movement, is trying to integrate it into all of the different subjects? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll be honest, coding is so hot, that allows me to get my foot in the door to have a conversation <laughs> with people. Yeah. But the reality is the conversation is so much bigger than that. I mean, we have to think about evaluation and, and standardization and what that looks like. We're providing kids opportunities to play in a sandbox where they're being creative. And I'm not sure skills like creativity and collaboration can be quantified. So we have to rethink, you know, the notion of letter grades and putting kids into the box or the rubrics, so to speak, when we're providing them opportunities to uh, scale and be creative as far as they want to take it. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come back to your grades in a little bit there. But before we do, um, I just kind of want to introduce the fact that uh, you've talked about this in, in a TEDx talk, and you do a lot of public speaking. Uh, and uh, as having been someone who has listened to 
all of the spe- uh, public speaking that I can get my hands on and research for this podcast. I must say that you're pretty good at it, so good on you. Uh, well, I appreciate that, thanks. Uh, but uh, was this something that you always felt comfortable with, or was this something that you really had to work at um, as public speaking? Uh, the public speaking thing, you know, and I did it a lot in elementary school, but I never really thought anything of it until it sort of came full circle when I started my teaching career. Um, and when I got into the classroom, you know, about 12 years ago, uh, I was asked to present about, you know, integrating smart boards. That was the technology. That was the tool uh, at the time. Yeah, right. Um, and so I, I think right from day one as a classroom teacher, I was presenting to, to colleagues. And I've just sort of learned uh, as I've gone through the motion, if you will, uh, up until this point. So it's a bit of a constructivist approach. I mean, I've learned through experience, positive and then, of course, negative feedback and pushback while, while public speaking. But just being able to, to try and read a room, and it's, it's, it's really no different than teaching a class full of students and trying to read who's disengaged and why that might be. And what, what, would you, what advice would you give teacher candidates or new teachers who might be a little bit nervous about speaking in front of their colleagues? Uh, you know what, even, even I get nervous to this day. Uh, my best advice would be just to forget about it. We're all professional people. We're all in the same place, and it's really a judgment-free zone. Everybody goes to conferences because they want to learn something. And, you know, if, if a session isn't right, if your session is right for somebody in that room and they happen to leave, that's totally okay. That happens to all of us, and, in fact, we should encourage that because professional development uh, should be about your own needs, right? And so we shouldn't be offended if, if people do leave and not take it personally that, it's perhaps our message or our content that didn't fit with them. It might just be that it just was didn't suit them. And you know, it's the idea of of risk taking and, and modeling that that approach for our students. This is a perfect example of that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's something that I I actually kind of admired when I was listening to your talk is the idea of risk taking and celebrating failure and the idea uh, behind. Um, celebrating failure because it is something that we're terrified of. Like we're terrified of failing, uh, whether it's in the classroom, in our lives, anywhere. And um, I remember when I was teaching an entrepreneurship class to my students, um, we, we talked about how one of the um, main factors of successful entrepreneurs is the fact that they can tolerate failure and move on from it. And the students were so surprised by that because they thought that entrepreneurs were just people who were instantly successful, and, and I had to explain to them that uh, the majority of entrepreneurs had failed five, six, seven, up to 50 times before they found the product that was right for them, and and so that was something that really resonated with me. Um, so how, how when you were teaching, how would you celebrate failures in your class? Well, the, the idea of celebrating failure in a system in which failure is punished is something that has to be rethought out, particularly in a math classroom. Um, you know, math, for a long time, math has been scored based on the quantity of correctness. And so failure was defined by how many answers you got right out of 10. And right. all this inquiry-based stuff we're doing today, you know, open-ended math problems, we have to rethink that because one good task might allow students to demonstrate a whole variety of skills. Now, being a phys ed teacher, I also look at the notion of failure in phys ed. And what does that mean? I never once put all my students on the foul line and graded them based on how many shots they could make out of 10 because all of them would fail, right? Yeah. So why was I doing that in my math class with worksheets? It's a very similar sort of a pedagogy. But then again, if you look at the phys ed classroom or even the science classroom or the arts classroom, those educators have been embracing failure since the beginning of school. I mean, you learn from trial and error in a gym class. It's technically rote and repetitive practice, right? But you're not graded, so to speak, based on how well you do it that first time through or at the end of a unit or anything like that. So I think we just have to recognize that 
failure is no longer a four out of ten. It's, oh, shoot, that didn't work. What can I change? What can I improve? And what did I learn from this? I mean, we learn from not necessarily experience, but reflecting on those experiences. So the idea of embracing failure and embracing risks is is brilliant. Um, but how do we do that in a system in which failure is punished? How do we encourage kids to take risks when there's too much risk and not getting the grade, so to speak? And so this ties us back into education reform. And, um, you know, for as long as I've been in the field of education, there's been lots of talk about of getting rid of letter grades and getting rid of the grading system that we have and and putting a, a, a mark essentially on a student and what they've done in a classroom. Um, but we're still to this day using letter grades and using these things. Um, and so obviously there's been some, some barriers as to um, getting this change pushed through. So what, what are those barriers specifically and how can we kind of move past those so that we can make it so that it's a more effective system to uh, reflect 21st century skills and learning? Yeah, I think we need we need a number of years as a transition. We almost need a single cohort of K to eight to to travel through ten years of school uh, without grades, so to speak. I mean, at my former school, when we piloted going gradeless, it was shocking for our older students because they had spent you know their yeah. eight to six years with grades, and all of a sudden, uh, by removing them, it didn't make sense. Particularly when we stream our students in high school here, we've got kids in grade eight that want to know their marks if they're headed into an academic stream. So I think there's quite a few barriers. Um, stakeholders in education are used to grades. Grades, in fact, are only created for stakeholders. They don't help the learner at all. Just to communicate to parents and to communicate data um, to other people who are in positions to make decisions. So I don't necessarily think that, that grades need to go away as a whole, but I don't think we have to grade absolutely everything that kids do. I mean, Take growing success, for example, here in Ontario, and the idea of observation, conversation, and student product. Uh, you know, to quote Damian Cooper, there's a reason cell phone towers use a trifecta for an accurate picture. And so the notion of grades uh, is scary because it's hard to quantify a conversation and it's hard to quantify observation. It's easy to quantify a student product if it's been scripted and there's a rubric. Right. And so a lot of the barriers are, are what we've been doing in education for the last, well, the last decade anyway, since we introduced rubrics and levels, or two decades, I suppose. And so that whole conversation kind of uh, reminds me, when I was teaching out West, I actually um, had an opportunity to go visit a charter school um, just as professional development. I was actually there for... Um, athletic director professional development and as part of their day they just had us go around for a tour and one of the interesting ideas that I found there is that students were actually able to negotiate their grade and so it wasn't an, it, it was it was self-evaluation and self-assessment uh, but it also allowed them to have a say in showing what they knew when they were presenting it to the teacher and it took a lot longer. Obviously, it's it's difficult for every teacher to have conferencing, but uh, I thought that was quite an interesting model, and it was a little bit different uh, as far as um, the idea of the grading model because you were also getting them to show that they knew what they were talking about and that they could discuss why they were doing it. And I think that has a lot of transferable skills to a modern workplace as well because you're able to discuss and, and negotiate and provide evidence of what you wanted. And... Um, 
it was just an interesting idea that I, I thought that kind of went along with what you you had talked about, and it also could they could point to the fact that they could show growth, and and that was something that they were assessed on rather than just being, you know, how many answers did you get out of ten, and and I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it, um, and I'm I'm hoping that as we continue to move towards um, you know a more progressive education system, we can continue to integrate ideas like that into our classroom so students are using skills that they're going to need when they're leaving the school system, uh, no matter what their profession is. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that because of the grading system we currently have, how often do we hear and how often do we say, myself included, oh, I need a math mark or, oh, I need a health mark. It's yeah. almost report card season. And thus our evaluation drives instruction, which is counterproductive. It should be the case. We typically are implying we're handing out a student product so we can crunch numbers very, very quickly to fill a mark book because we have to report on it. Yeah, and that's that's the pressure that's on teachers as well, is we say those things not because we necessarily want to go and find a math mark. We say it because, you know, that's what we have been taught that we need to have so that we can show it. Justification, and right? Exactly. It's yeah. this is what we have been doing and this is how we can do it. And um, I, I, when I asked the question, one of the things that I think is actually – uh, in, in my opinion, one of the biggest barriers would be getting parent support because we've all one one of the things that stuck with me, and I don't remember who told it to me, but um, one of the things that I found to be most interesting was the idea that the tough thing about education is that everyone has an experience with it, and so parents feel um, as if they know the education system through and through because they have gone through it. But when you make changes to that education system, it's up. It's not upsetting, but it's it's a challenge to try and get people on board to show that um, this is something different. And I think that yeah. kind of ties into this thought as well. 100%, right? It's like you said, education is the only industry in which everyone has lived at least the better part of 16, 18 to 25 years. Right. And so everyone totally has an opinion. I think uh, a lot of the conversations we have with some of the parents at our school are like we don't practice medicine the way we did 20 years ago. <laughs> Um, you know, industry has changed significantly, significantly, and if, if education were a business, the reality is we'd be bankrupted because we're so slow to move. Right. Yeah, and and that's that's something that I I hope that the message gets across um, across the country and and really across the world because it, it's something that we need to really think about and change. And even as teachers, I mean, I was guilty of it when I was teaching where. Sometimes I would fall into habits of what I did when I was in school, and then I had to kind of realize that that wasn't the most effective way to reach the students that were in my classroom, and, and I'd have to change and adjust and adapt. And so, um, well, even when I was in grad school, I was playing the math game. You look at a syllabus and you figure out which assignments are most important and yep. which ones you know you can hammer out quickly with the best return, if you will, so <laughs> that if you have to flunk another one your average still maintains what you need to be in that program like even in grad school i was doing that oh yeah it's funny that you it's funny that you say that because uh i used to have a um, faculty of education instructor who would always refer to school as playing the game and it was because you can always identify like how you're going to get your marks and it wasn't necessarily that you knew the content or that you had learned it was just that you knew the system and you knew how to work the system and uh that's kind of what i what that you know, brings me back to when you say things like that. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about badges, right? I, I mean, I don't claim to own this idea. It's all over the Internet. But imagine a school system where 
students could demonstrate a skill and receive a badge just like you would at summer camp and maybe kids could graduate high school after say 30 badges and it doesn't matter how old you are and not all students have to have the same badge <laughs> exactly yeah no it's it's exactly like that um but we're gonna we're gonna uh, transition a little bit here it's just so that I don't get into sounding too much like a grumpy old man on a rant. Um, so speaking of, of badges and, and kind of the, the idea of apps, you've created a lot of classroom apps yourself. And I know this is like asking you to choose your favorite child, but uh, which one have you been most proud of uh, or which one do you use the most and why do you think it's so useful? I'll be honest, all the apps that I created over the last decade or so were just because I couldn't find an alternative solution for schools or a free solution for schools, or it was just a way to beat a firewall. So I have to go back and pick my favorite. It was 100% be Twitchicate, which is something I started back in probably 2000 and 2008. I remember going to a workshop and we were talking about digital citizenship and how do we prepare kids and, and model this approach. And I remember in 2008 going, well, it's really hard to do when social media is blocked in schools, right? That was right. chartered territory. We didn't know how to navigate that. So shut down YouTube, shut down Facebook, shut down Twitter until we figure this out. So I left that workshop going, well, wait a second. How do we model digital citizenship when these apps and tools that we want to use are blocked at school? And I remember doing Pathways because I was an intermediate teacher. And I remember a group of students had said to me, Mr. A, you know, you study computer science. Why'd you get into education? And, you know, we skirt that conversation and tell them all the benefits of it. And they said, well, why don't you merge the two? And it was like a light bulb went off. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my goodness, these kids are totally right. Why can't I build an app that allows me to teach what it is I'm being asked to teach, you know, in terms of digital citizenship? And so that's what we did. And, and you, you know, having students as your beta testers was really remarkable. And having the, the media pick up on it and having them come into the classroom to do interviews with kids and parents, it was to this day, it was one of my most proudest moments, just because it sort of happened naturally, I guess. And so when I think about the lessons, the best lessons I've ever taught in my classroom were pretty well unscripted, so to speak. And this was, that was a project that did it. And within two years, we had, uh, I think I had almost 150,000 users in the first two years. That's pretty incredible. And, and for anyone out there that doesn't know what it is, can you just give a little summary? Yeah, Twidgicate was... Play on words, so Twitter for Education, so T-W-I-D-U-C-A-T-E. Um, I'm no longer involved with the project. I mean, the second Twitter was opened in all of the schools, so it wasn't necessarily a need for it. Right. But a lot of educators are still using it because it's a walled garden. So essentially only people in your classroom would follow your stream, and the stream looks like a Twitter stream, um, but it's not affiliated with Twitter in any way, so you're not having a Twitter account or anything like that. But when students and teachers are posting messages to a timeline, it's behind that walled garden. And and what would you say to teachers who maybe don't have the computer science background or, or the coding experience and are coming up against uh, such a change in the way that we look at the education system? Um, how, how would you recommend they go about um, kind of learning to do a lot of these things and learning to, to help students with creative coding projects and, and with uh, developing apps and doing all of these different things because it's it's a lot more challenging if you don't have that background, I would imagine. Yeah, yes and no. I think there's pros and cons to both. I mean, my approach is a little bit biased when I'm asking kids to build apps because I perhaps my expectations are slightly different. Um, 
But the biggest shift in my own pedagogy was letting go of the tools of technology. In my first couple of years teaching, we were trying to um, fund a class that had the iPod Touch back in the day. But I didn't know why I was trying to do that. I just knew I wanted this tool in my classroom, so my pedagogy wasn't um, what it is today, so to speak. And I remember spending hours and hours after school looking at apps and trying different apps just to see what they could do because I felt it was my job to teach the tool and I was burning myself out completely. About five years into my career I thought, you know what, all I need to do is know my curriculum really well and be comfortable with discomfort. I mean, I've probably got a half hour of Minecraft playing time to my name but I know what it can do and I use it in my classroom on a daily basis. So I think the biggest shift for myself and the best advice I can give is not to be afraid to just let go. Because let the kids bring the tool to you, and if you recognize curriculum and what they're doing, you've totally won. And I think it, the challenge with that is that in Ontario and across Canada uh, as well, there's just such a fear of not meeting all of the curriculum expectations, which is so difficult because you never really do have an opportunity to meet all of the curriculum expectations. Um, and so how do you know that you're going to kind of get to that point where when they're using these tools and when they're using these apps, you can integrate it into what the curriculum is and, and how they can do it? Yeah, the entry, finding the entry points is, is going to be the toughest spot. But ultimately, if you know your curriculum really, really well and you present a task and you say to kids, you know, what might be the most appropriate tool here, you'd be amazed as to uh, what they can come up with. And I think you'll see a lot of natural curriculum stuff come through it. I'll give you a perfect example. Two years ago, I had a group of grade 8 students. Uh, we had Genius Hour scheduled into our timetable at the time, which is that opportunity for kids to follow a passion um, and do their own sort of projects in our language arts minute, so they would read and write about whatever it is that they were working on. But this group of boys uh, decided they wanted to take apart a lawnmower, and I said, well, I go down when everyone's okay with bringing a lawnmower to school. And with permission, uh, they brought in a lawnmower, and they started to take apart this lawnmower. And, of course, in my mind, this is our Genius Hour Language Arts project. So they're going to take apart a lawnmower, and then they're going to blog about it. They're going to recount what they did, summarize what they did, write an explanation, because I was so focused on those language minutes, because right. that's where Genius Hour was timetabled. But as they started taking it apart, they started talking about the... the um, circumference of the deck. I remember them saying it's a 24-inch deck, and I went, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that the blade is whatever 24 divided by pi, and all of a sudden I'm doing my grade 8 measurement. I'm going, oh my <laughs> goodness, there's our circles unit right here in, in math. And then we're talking about oil, because I looked at the oil, the, the cap for the oil, and I said, why does it say 5W30? And they tell me it's about thickness of oil, and all of a sudden we're doing viscosity, which is our intermediate science curriculum. And it, that wasn't planned, but it just happened, and I knew my curriculum well enough that we could engage in those conversations. The real challenge is, I guarantee those boys will never forget circumference, diameter, and viscosity, but how do you quantify that experience? How do you now assign a grade to what, to what we just talked about, you know? Right. And I guess that goes back to what we kind of talked about earlier, where is is it important to assign a grade to those types of things when we have students who are learning in an authentic and, and, you know, it sounds like they were very engaged. I, I wasn't in the room, but it's very engaged in it as well. And, and you know... Well, and, and, you know, in class, they would pull out a cell phone and call their uncle who was a mechanic, and I was totally okay with that. And he was offering them advice because they didn't have the answer and I didn't have the answer. And that's right. the world in which we live. But the reality is... 
I hate to put kids in a box. I never want to do that. These were students who were heading to the applied stream who had mastered this this curriculum content. So now I'm faced with this bit of a dilemma where I know these kids deserve an A in these content areas, but then all of a sudden these red flags go off. If they're A's, they need to be an academic. Well, that's a conversation with parents because they don't understand, right? Yeah, and I guess that goes back. That's that's getting into a whole another type of education reform where we relook at streaming and what that is and what that does. And yeah, not all provinces in Canada stream in high school. Yeah. Um, on just just going off of that, when it, it's something that not enough teachers, I think, are comfortable doing yet, just from what I've seen and, and from what I've heard, but. Uh, you know, when you talk about calling their uncle in the class and, and having them talk about it, it, the other thing, the other tools that you can use is, it's amazing to me how few teachers are willing to look things up w on Google or on YouTube or anything when students are there. And I think it, it's it's such a useful tool that we have now that uh, you can you have all of these resources at your fingertips that there's no point in just pretending like we have to have all of the answers. And yeah, uh, I mean, we used to go to school because that's where the knowledge was. The teacher was the content expert. And, um, well, teachers are still experts, don't get me wrong. I think if we flatten hierarchies and recognize all students as experts in their own domain, that's probably the biggest shift that needs to occur. And, and like you said, uh, the idea of I don't know, the power of I don't know as an educator models what it means to find information, synthesize information, summarize information, and then make an opinion based on it. So we're gonna we're gonna transition here a little bit. Um, so you've written a book called Code Breaker. So just in in a quick summary, who is this book for, and why should they go out and buy it right now? Uh, Code Breaker is a book written for the K to twelve space. Uh, anyone in K to eight, and, and probably some math and science at the secondary level, just because I've written it through my own lens and, and being in the elementary side of things, it would just gear itself slightly better to that, but it's also for parents and students because it's a story of, it's a it's a real story of the shift in, in my own program. So as I write the book, or as I wrote the book, it was basically talking about where I was in my practice at the beginning. You know, I felt I had to fill a mark book, and I had to produce all of this student product to, to where I am today, and then there's coding lessons embedded throughout, uh, activities to help people begin to try coding in other subject areas. Math is obviously the natural fit, but there's examples of how to code in a science classroom or a language arts classroom. You had mentioned spiraling curriculum, you know, earlier in this call, and, and those are perfect examples of that. I mean, if you're using a tool like Scratch, you would need to understand a Cartesian grid just to use it. And if you're right. creating content for a language classroom, then you, the power of, of spiraling the curriculum in those experiences is huge. And how can people find the book? Codebreaker is available on Barnes & Noble, it's available on Indigo, and it's available on Amazon. And what were some of your, I mean, for a lot of us out there, I mean, I can say personally, I have never written a book, so what were some of the biggest challenges with that uh, experience? <laughs> well, we never want to say we're bad at math, so I won't say I was bad at writing. I'll just say having studied computer science in my undergrad, I, have, I don't have a lot of experience with writing papers per se. But I will admit that my writing has significantly improved the more I have done it, and I have no regrets about starting a blog, you know, about 10 years ago, because that's where a lot of the ideas reside. 
Um, but being able to take them and articulate them into my own thoughts and reflections today, that was a really lengthy, frustrating, but fun process. And ultimately, now I have a product that I'm really, really proud of because I never in a million years would have thought that that would come to fruition. Right. I'm actually working on a second one, shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's where can we get that one? Where's What's that all about? Well, uh, as a follow-up to Codebreaker, just for the people listening, of course the, the book is about coding, but the idea of Codebreaker based on Alan Turing and his work during uh, World War II in terms of rethinking the way they did business allowed them to win the war. So the notion of Codebreaking itself is a bit of a metaphor in terms of the conversation we're having here. How do we hack the system or hack the classroom right. in terms of education reform? So the follow-up book is called going to be called Blockbreaker, and it's a story about Minecraft. It's a story about a former student of mine who was autistic, and Minecraft was an exceptional tool to allow him to demonstrate thoughts and ideas and things of that nature. But again, it's a, a, it's a book about pedagogy. It's not, you know, 15 ways to use Minecraft in your classroom. It's right. look at what Minecraft was able to do for this profile of student, and as a result, I had to rethink absolutely everything I did in terms of how I did day-to-day business in my classroom. All right. Well, that's a pretty interesting book, and I I can't wait for it to come out. Uh, We're just going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with your classroom confession. Are you an occasional teacher looking to improve your job prospects? Are you an experienced teacher trying to reach the next pay scale? Are you interested in improving your overall teaching practice? Queen's Continuing Teacher Education has you covered. With easy-to-access online courses, you can log on to your course from anywhere you have access to the Internet. Courses offered by CTE range from special education to technological education to safe and accepting schools. Queen's CTE courses work with your schedule, have supportive, expert instructors that want to help you succeed. Registration is fast and easy with no commitment to pay until the Friday before the course starts. What are you waiting for? Visit coursesforteachers.ca for more information or to sign up today. That's coursesforteachers.ca. And we're back to uh, our Brian Aspinall episode of Popular Podagogy. Uh, we are at the classroom confession portion of the episode where we have teachers come on and tell us something funny that's happened to them while they were teaching or uh, something funny that some, a funny interaction that's happened with their student. Uh, and it's just meant to show that as educators, we see a lot of uh, really funny things, a lot of fun things in the classroom, and uh, it's it's good to share them and show that, you know, not everything goes perfectly all the time, but it's okay because we can adapt and, and enjoy that. So do you have a classroom confession for us? Yeah, I've got a classroom confession. Do you remember when the Canadian penny went away? Oh, yeah. I don't remember the year, four or five years ago now, perhaps. Somewhere around there, yeah. And I thought, you know what, it became, it was time for our probability unit. Of course, at the time, math kind of followed a calendar. So, you know, it's like April 1st, it's time for probabilities. So says the textbook or some framework you're following. 
So I thought, I'm going to go to the bank, and I'm going to get all these souvenir pennies for kids in my class. They're going to think it's so awesome. They're grade eight years. They're going to have a little memento to remember forever. And I asked them, I handed out all of these pennies to every kid in the class, and I said, okay, everyone, get out a piece of paper and make a T-chart. I want you to put a T, and I want you to put an H. It was very, very scribed. I didn't even tell them why we were doing it. I just gave them step by step by step. <laughs> it's like putting together IKEA furniture, right? Just do this, then that, then this, then that, and I'll give you. Did your lesson break halfway through? You put it, putting it together, or what's that? I said, did your lesson break halfway through? You putting it together like IKEA furniture does, or oh, exactly like. <laughs> like that it never went together properly the first time <laughs> so i said okay and 24 kids in my class and i want everyone to flip this penny one time raise your hand if you got heads and of course you would expect about 50 50 to to have heads we have a sample set so i said, look around the room and of course kids in my class already immediately get it and i go here we go it's theoretical experimental probability <laughs> and there's other kids in my class looking around the room going i don't know why those hands are up and, and you know we'll figure it out so of course, my job is to teach experimental and theoretical probabilities. So when you flip a coin, it should be 50-50 all the time. Right. But when you do an experiment, it's almost never 50-50. I mean, you flip one coin three times, it is never going to be 50-50. So I said, okay, whatever, well, I'm flip this penny a second time. Raise your hand if you got heads-heads. Of course, there's only four possible outcomes when you flip one coin twice. So the expectation was to see about six hands raised. At this point, I'm thinking, oh, this lesson is going so well. But I realize now it was the kids that already understood the probability who were getting it. And the kids that didn't understand the probability part of it were, no, were not even understanding. We weren't moving in any direction. So I said, what do you think would happen if we flip this penny, you know, 50 times? I put up the smart notebook timer because we just got our smart, our smart notebook timer was super engaging in those days. I used it for everything, which was a really bad approach. I was <laughs> using the tool for the sake of the tool. So I put it on. I set it for 15 minutes. Of course, I made a lot of biased assumptions. Number one, I assumed every kid in my class could flip a penny. I assumed every kid in my class could flip a penny 50 times. I assumed every kid in my class could flip one penny 50 times in 15 minutes. I remember walking over to the radio, I turned it on, and the kids went, whoa, Mr. A, it's not art class. I went, I know, I'm feeling super progressive today in math. I turned the music on, I start the timer, and I start walking around the room. I head over to the first table, and there's a group of girls, and they're just reading. They pull up books, and they're just reading. I look at them, and they said, Mr. A, we just want to read. And I remember thinking in that moment, yeah, there's probably more value in that book. I can't read that book. It's about three inches thick. I mean, these kids are ready for grade 11 already, and they're in grade 8. And I said to them, what do you think would happen if you flipped this penny 50 times? And I'll never forget the one girl sitting to my left. She said, Mr. A, if I flip that penny 50 times, I might get 25-25. I might get 23-27. But I tell you what, if I then repeated and I flipped it 100 times, the data set from that second experiment would more likely be closer to 50-50 than the first. And I just looked at her and I said, I'll be back. And I walked away and I walked <laughs> over to the second table. And there's a kid, he's like, he threw his penny at me, he threw his penny at me. And over to my left, I see another kid with a Ziploc bag. There's no more pennies. Can I have your penny? Can I have your penny? And I thought, holy smokes, this went way better in the Nelson Guide I just read on my prep. <laughs> in fact, I had to go and close the door and turn the music off because it was so loud and I'd lost complete control. But I was at a place in my own pedagogy where I was not ready to admit failure or feel vulnerable in front of them. So I sat down at my desk and pretended the lesson was going exactly how uh, I had anticipated it, too. And it was everything but. I lost complete control. We wasted 20 minutes. Nothing was happening at all. In fact, the group of girls at the front who were trying to read were now mad that they couldn't read because it was too loud. When the bell rang, a student approached me and said, Miss Trey, I'm going to build you an app so you can teach that better next year. <laughs> I remember looking at them and I was like,
a digital manipulative that actually demonstrates the law of large numbers because he threw all his code into a loop and allowed us to flip his virtual penny a million times in a matter of minutes, thus showing the results being 50-50 to some hence decimal place. But even more powerful than that, I looked at him and I said, can you make me a bias coin? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, we talked about bias the other day in our probability class, like mark cards, weighted dice. He said, oh, okay. The next day he comes back with a new app, and he says, click that turbo button and flip this penny, and I did. And all of a sudden, it was heads 66% of the time. You know, And I said, how did you do that? He said, well, I, I knew it was going to be 66% of the time because I programmed it to be heads two <laughs> out of three times instead of one out of two. And so with regards to something like the SAMR model in terms of redefinition, here is an example where I had a lesson that had gone completely chaotic, and a, a student... Uh, typically, again, don't want to put a kid in the box, but typically disengaged math student came and created a, not only the app to demonstrate what the learning goal was from the day prior, but uh, an app that I'd never been able to have in my classroom or a manipulative I'd never actually been able to have with that weighted coin. The next day when all my students came back, I had dice, I had spinners, I had weighted dice, all kinds of probability simulators that groups of kids in my class had coded. And, and so they not only had demonstrated their own learning, but they created content for me that I could use in future years as teaching tools. Well, at least that's a bad lesson that ended up working out for you in your favor because that's... And I think and I think the ultimate, the moral of that story, I think, is the idea of letting go. The idea of letting that kid build that app when I said, yeah, this didn't work. If you can help me out, that would be great. Yeah, and that's, that's something that... Uh is always a challenge when you're when you're a teacher but it's you know it's good that you were able to to move forward with that and and let that student get there so thank you for sharing that it's a good lesson for for all of us when we're we're thinking about you know the stresses of of making sure that that perfect lesson is going to go perfectly and when it doesn't it's really uh it's painful but you'll move on from it and you figure it out from there that's that's i think what i've learned the most um I don't, I'm not suggesting I don't put effort into my lessons, but the more effort uh, and scripting I put into it, the more frustrated I would get when we went off script, when the reality is going off script is where the real learning is because it becomes authentic. Right. Um, so, Brian, we're almost at the end of our podcast here, but uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to, to let people know where they can find you and where they can uh, you know, see your talks and, and find Codebreaker. So. Do you want to Absolutely. share that? Yeah, no, I, I exist on just about every social channel. You can get me on Twitter at Mr. Aspinall, uh, Instagram, Mr. Aspinall. You can find me on Facebook if you'd like to. I've got my uh, professional Facebook page out there. My YouTube channel and everything is available on my blog, which is brianaspinall.com, if people want to look at some of the TED Talks that I've done. And uh, I guess the last shameless plug, if you're going to give me the chance. Absolutely. Is, uh, for my capstone project, when I was in grad school, I created a series of videos and curated all of our research, and I put it all together into an online site called thehourofcuriosity.com. And so in my mind, it's sort of like the Hour of Code Part 2, but there's about 20 or 30 video tutorials for educators that might be interested in trying coding. I mean, all they have to do is put on one of my videos, and it's a step-by-step -step tutorial for kids to kind of get their feet wet in that coding space. Yeah, and as someone who's who's actually um, gone out and listened to a lot of the things that you've done and, and uh, I, I've had the opportunity to talk to you before this as well, and, and you, you really do have an interesting grasp on the education system and where we should be going. And, 
And so I encourage everyone out there to go go check out uh, Brian's Twitter and, and check out his blog and and see kind of where he sits on on the education side of things because it's it's really important that we continue to look to thought leaders and other people who have different ideas of education in order to uh, progress ourselves as teachers and, and recognize that we don't have all the answers and you never will, but you can always keep trying to learn it and learn from others and see what other people's successes and failures are and, and kind of go from go off of those. So, uh, Brian, thank you for coming on today and, and having the opportunity to chat with us here, and uh, um, hopefully we can do it again sometime. But uh, good luck with the, the new book, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much. Pleasure is all mine. I really appreciate it. All right. So that does it for another episode of Popular Podagogy. If you like what you hear, you can find us on Apple uh, Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. Uh, We are also available on the Faculty of Education and the CFRC websites. We'll see you next time. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.